We are in the midst of a sermon series called The Unnamed, which is about the many characters who are important to the Bible story, but who never receive a name. Last week, Bill preached about Pharaoh's daughter who plucked Moses out of his tiny kayak, placed him in the palace where he later grew to lead the people to freedom. Today, we are fast forwarding through 400 years and six books of the Bible to 1 Samuel. The descendants of the people who fled Egypt with Moses have until now lived in a loose confederation of tribes ruled by judges. Saul is their first monarch, and as God warned through the prophet Samuel, things are not going well. Turns out, putting a human leader in God's place never does. So 28 chapters later, we read this. Saul disguised himself and went to the woman at nighttime. Please call up a ghost for me, Saul said. Listen, she said to him, are you trying to get me killed? You know Saul has banned all the mediums and diviners from the land. But Saul promised, as surely as the Lord lives, you won't get into trouble. Bring up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed at Saul, saying, Why have you tricked me? You are Saul. Don't be afraid, the king said to her. What do you see? I see a god coming up out of the ground. He's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed out of respect, nose to the ground. Why have you disturbed me, Samuel asked Saul. I'm in deep trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are at war with me. God has turned away from me and no longer answers. So I have called on you to tell me what I should do. Why do you ask me, Samuel said. The Lord has done to you exactly as he spoke through me. The Lord has ripped the kingdom out of your hands and has given it to your friend, David. The Lord has done this very thing to you because you didn't listen to the Lord's voice. And the Lord will now hand you both over to Israel and the Philistines. And come tomorrow, you and your sons will be here in the grave with me. Saul immediately fell on the ground terrified. He was weak because he hadn't eaten in a day and a night. And the woman, seeing how scared he was, said, Listen, I risked my life and did what you told me to do. Now it's your turn to listen to me. Let me give you a bit of food, eat it, and then you will have the strength to go on your way. She had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly butchered it, and she took flour and kneaded it and created unleavened bread, and she served this to Saul and his servants. Have you seen the white lotus? In the opening scene of season one, we meet an unhappy newlywed, Shane, at the end of his honeymoon. He's at the airport gate, and a casket is being loaded onto the flight home. The foreboding background music, I learned, is a variation on the Dies Irae, a well-known chant which translated means the Day of Wrath. It sounds like this. And this is the same kind of feeling we get when we read this passage from 1 Samuel. We are suddenly thrust to the tragic end of a story that we don't know. And just like watching the next five episodes of The White Lotus, we will encounter an assorted crew of weird and often unlikable characters making a total mess of what should be paradise. 
So hang in there with me, and we will find a word for God for us today. Like Shane, Saul, things are going horribly for King Saul, and much of it is his own fault. There's an enormous army camped on his doorstep, along with his archrival David, who has joined up with the enemy. Saul's advisor and kingmaker, the prophet, seer, and judge Samuel, is dead. God has stopped taking Saul's calls, and the king is desperate to know how this battle will turn out. And having banned all the mediums and wizards, Saul now realizes he needs them and their knowledge. So he demands his servants find him one, and out on the edge of town, they know a witch who works off the books, making her living, mediating across the thin veil that separates this life from the next. So Saul, disguised, goes to the reluctant witch who raises the prophet Samuel from his eternal rest, and the ticked-off prophet tells Saul that David will be king and Saul and his sons will die in battle. Saul, in shock, lays there in the dirt until the medium forces him to eat bread. And then, in what scholars speculate might be a quasi-religious ritual in a banned subsystem, the witch butchers her prize calf and feeds it to them. Cue the DAC ray. How did we get here? Well, the first volume of Samuel is an epic tale of David's rise to power. If it reads like a piece of historical fiction worthy of a TV series like Rain or Versailles, that's because it is. In fact, ABC tried to make just such a series about this tale called Of Kings and Prophets, an epic story of a man destined to be king. But it was pulled after just two episodes because critics said it was too violent and too racy to be on TV. Others said that it was a Game of Thrones ripoff. I didn't watch it, but I've read 1 Samuel, and it is epic, and it is full of mature content. So remember, the authors of Samuel are writing centuries after the fact, trying to make sense of 200 years of suffering and foreign domination, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And they don't agree on whether a monarchy is good or not, but they do agree that David is the one to take over Saul's failed regime. They assemble the legends and stories into a multi-volume, best-selling tale organized around the idea that God's blessing results from obedience and disobedience results in dire consequences. David is their hero. Saul is thrown under the bus. But it's not really all that simple. To put it another way, the authors of Samuel would likely fail the analysis section of an AP history course, not because they make a claim, but because their argument is muddled and they can't substantiate it with any source material. But they would ace an AP lit course because their attention to setting and plot and character rivals Shakespeare. So finding meaning in a complicated text like this one requires the kind of higher order thinking skills and analysis that we learn in AP classes and in college. We don't read this story with young children, but in fourth grade, we do teach them how to interpret it because we've just handed them a third grade Bible that contains this story as well as many other racy things. Smart and reasonable people will come to different conclusions about the consequences of historical events and God's involvement in them. That's why some of you won't agree with me that God's word for today is a call to be like the witch of Endor, 
Become an agent of mercy in an unfair world. This text brings us right up against the limits of human intellect and points us toward wisdom that lives on the edges and the margins. Could it be that knowledge might one day be needed by the very people who seek to ban it? Throughout history, there have been people, many of them women, like the medium at Endor, who possess a kind of wisdom and insight that puts them into conflict with the establishment. Take Hildegard of Bingen, for example, who experienced visions of God she called the shade of living light. Among her many accomplishments, she was a medical writer and she founded two abbeys. She also composed chants, many of them good musical antidotes if the dies irae gets stuck in your head. But St. Hildegard ran afoul of the religious authorities when she refused to bring up the body of an excommunicated revolutionary from the church cemetery. In the cover of night, she and the other nuns disguised his grave so they would not be able to find it. And the church authorities responded by banning mass and the sacraments from her abbey. She replied to those in power that those who stand in the way of God's praises will go to the place of no music in the next life. But 800 years after her death in 2012, she was canonized by the Catholic Church. I once met a modern woman who, like the witch of Endor, compassionately accompanies folks through the mysteries of their last days. Dr. Martha Jo Atkins collects and documents visions of the dying, the auditory, visual, and tactile experiences that often bring comfort in those final days. She admits that some say these experiences are biological, some, you know, firing of the synapses in the brain. Others say these visions are proof of the soul's life after death. Dr. Atkins says it doesn't matter. Neither side can prove their hypothesis, but my conjecture is this. These are opportunities to meet the dying person where they are. She's an accomplished researcher who doesn't know how to quantify the practice of providing compassion and comfort to the dying. So in Saul's case, it is the medium who provides him comfort. As king, Saul holds the power of life and death over the witch, but she's not powerless. She's been making her living undetected by the authorities, and she's not afraid to tell a king who's just received a fatal diagnosis that what he should do, eat. Her compassion arrives in the form of this hastily prepared meal that prepares Saul to face what lies ahead. So God bless the hospice workers and the chaplains of this world. And isn't this just like God? Using the unexpected, the unsanctioned, the underdog to bring a bit of mercy to this troubled world. Again and again throughout scripture, God adapts to the chaos and confusion humans create to try to lead us toward peace, even paradise. Do you feel a bit sorry for Saul? The witch of Endor is the only one who shows him any compassion. After all, he's just an ordinary guy from the smallest family in the lowest ranking tribe out looking for his father's donkey when Samuel pours a bucket of oil on his head and declares that he will be king. He doesn't have the stomach to wipe his enemy off the planet. Maybe if he had, the generations after him wouldn't have suffered under the Babylonians. We don't know. 
But what we do know is that David is the one who will live in history as God's chosen king, even though he is far, far from perfect. So we are looking through a dark glass, trying to find God in a messy, messy narrative. Let me tell you one more story about another woman who got into trouble with the powers that be, this time religious ones. Several years ago, one of the first women priests in the Church of England, Reverend Lydia, Linda Climus, installed a table and chairs for children in her 12th century chapel where she was rector. Now maybe she knew her, songs were, her sermons were long for young ears, or maybe she knew parents could use a hand worshiping with their children. In any case, she's provided this comfortable space for kids. Some in the congregation were so disgusted, you would have thought she removed the cross from the chancel. They demanded her removal, a small, loud, but unsuccessful few. And one year ago this week, in what would, have been, what would turn out to be the final months of Queen Elizabeth's reign, Queen Elizabeth pointed the Reverend Climus to, as chaplain to the sovereign. It's a mostly honorary role, but the chaplains agree to make themselves available should the queen want advice in the form of a sermon. Now, I don't know if Reverend Climus ever got to advise the queen face to face, but her church website indicates that she's still serving in that same parish where she offered a small mercy in the form of a little table. So friends, we might tangle with the powers that be we will be with people when they receive bad news. We will walk with others through their last days. All of it is a part of God's epic story. So may we be led to act with compassion using what God has entrusted us with. What name did tradition give the witch at Endor? Sedekla, a name that might just be connected to the Hebrew word for righteous. Righteous.